This week's clinical review looks at exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, which can occur in children and athletes of various fitness levels. I'm Sophie Cook, Clinical Reviews Editor, and I'm joined on the phone by two authors of the review, Jane Smoliga, Associate Professor of Physiology at High Point University in North Carolina, and Kenneth Rondell, Associate Professor at the Commonwealth Medical College in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to talk about how health professionals can diagnose this condition. James and Ken, thank you for joining me today. Can you first of all tell me what prompted you to see a need for something like this in the literature? Well, um, here just working with a lot of different athletes and uh, Ken can speak about this as well from his experience with the Olympic Training Center and beyond. But um, there's a lot of athletes that come in and are referred uh, because they have some sort of fatigue or some sort of trouble breathing during exercise and right away they're diagnosed with exercise-induced asthma by a lot of people. And the term asthma isn't necessarily appropriate in uh, in that case, and the diagnosis isn't appropriate because they're diagnosed based on symptoms, uh, just uh, nothing more, and then they're given medication to take, and a lot of times they don't respond to the medication, and as a result, they come in as uh, for a referral. What's wrong? You know, they've got asthma, they're not responding to the medication, and then you find out that they actually were never properly diagnosed with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, and in a lot of cases, they don't actually even have it um, when you actually do uh, attempt to test them. And clearly, there's there's a lot of athletes on medications that shouldn't be, and then there's plenty that might actually have EIB that actually aren't diagnosed. So it just seemed like a, a major problem that needs to be addressed. Okay. Ken, if we if we go to you for a minute, if we think back to basics, what exactly is exercise-induced bronchoconstriction? What does that mean physiologically? Well, physiologically, it's, it's a transient narrowing of the airways following vigorous exercise would, would be a definition that, that Sandy Anderson coined uh, some years ago. And <clears throat> that's that's pretty appropriate. And, and um, the non-asthmatic uh, or the non-EIB individual uh, actually uh, has a touch of bronchodilation uh, from exercise. Um, and uh, with the, uh, the person that has EIB, whether it's with apparent asthma or without apparent asthma, um, will have this bronchoconstriction after they uh, uh, stop exercising, and that would be a relatively brief bout of exercise. Uh, during longer bouts of exercise, uh, they can bronchoconstrict during uh, the exercise, and, and a lot of that depends on, on their level of ventilation. So there's uh, a touch of a mechanical protection. Uh, so at high ventilation rates, um, the individual with EIB typically will not bronchoconstrict um, uh, substantially until the ventilation goes down. Uh, Ken Beck, um, some years ago, did a, a really great study on, on that where the individuals did continuous exercise for 30 minutes or uh, interval type exercise. And uh, with those doing a continuous uh, exercise, uh, they bronchoconstricted uh, a bit during that 30 minutes, but not substantial. Um, during the interval exercise, uh, during the rest period, they would bronchoconstrict, and then during exercise, they would bronchodilate again, and that continued on through the 30 minutes um, with an overall gradual uh, fall in FEV1. But the, the primary fall occurs uh, 
after you stop exercising, and that may be five to 20 minutes after you stop exercising. And it typically resolves on its own, uh, but when there's a severe uh, bronchoconstriction, that can be concerning. Jamie, you, you talk in the review about how there are some people who do sports who are most at risk. Who are the most at risk groups? Um, so uh, athletes that actually already have uh, actual asthma are more likely to have EIB. Um, and then athletes that uh, are participating in any type of environment where um, they're exposed to either extremely dry air or um, high pollution uh, environments, uh, those are also expected that uh, they might have problems. So uh, some of the work that Ken has actually done, uh, a lot of research on winter sport athletes, uh, especially um, ice hockey and uh, speed skating athletes that are exercising in an ice rink that where they use a fossil fuel powered Zamboni, there's a lot of particulate matter in the air there. Uh, that's one of the things that can uh, basically uh, trigger EIB. Um, any type of uh, high allergen type of environment, uh, one of the things that uh, we discussed is that there can be a seasonal component to it. So uh, people that are uh, uh, training in any place where there's a lot of pollen in the air and um, potentially if they're uh, atopic, that can uh, basically be associated with EIB. And then also any type of other respiratory irritant um, such as swimmers that train in uh, indoor pools that have that use uh, chlorine systems. Basically, if uh, the um, sanitation's not up to standard, uh, where basically the chlorine combines with uh, ammonia from uh, you know ammonia uh, secretions from the skin, it forms chloramines, and uh, those are respiratory irritant too. So you tend to see um, swimmers that train indoors with a high uh, high uh, prevalence of EIB. And uh, then, like I said, to dry air environments uh, tend to trigger it. So those individuals uh, have it, uh, tend to report it a lot more often. Uh, but the cold air athletes, um, skiers, uh, and they have cross-country skiers, uh, they are predisposed to it too. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add to that if I could. Um, uh, this is Ken Rundell. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, swimmers uh, pose a very interesting group. Um, there's a relatively high prevalence of asthma among swimmers and that has been attributed to the uh, chronic inhalation of the trichloramines and uh, Adam Castricum from Australia did a really uh, really neat study um, a couple years back on, on swimmers and what he found was was that in the pool uh, the swimmers did not have um, a, a bout of EIB, um, uh, so they they were relatively um, EIB free when they were in the pool, but when given dry air uh, exercise or EVH challenges, they bronchoconstricted, and and that's um, uh, interesting because uh, the swimming is ultimately responsible for. Uh, their development of asthma from the uh, chronic inhalation of the trichloramines, or at least it's, it's highly suspected. Um, however, the high humidity at the surface level uh, protects them from having EIB while they're in the pool. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I want to move on a little bit from sort of the, the at-risk groups to thinking about the actual diagnosis now and how to make it. You talk in the review about how there's a high symptom crossover with other conditions, asthma being one of them. How can doctors avoid misdiagnosis or overdiagnosis of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction? 
I think one of the first things that's really important to consider is not just basing everything on the symptoms. A lot of times the knee-jerk reaction is, well, you're an athlete, you're exercising, you're having trouble breathing, therefore it must be exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. That must be a diagnosis. So I think getting away from the tunnel vision a little bit is important. Um, one of the things that is important to recognize with a lot of these team sport athletes is that uh, essentially uh, they complain of they're out of breath and uh, and a lot of times this happens when they move up to a different level of play. You know, if they're getting better now, they join some kind of traveling club team or they transition from junior high to high school or high school to college um, and they're moving up and everybody else is exercising, uh, you know, on the field, they're going through the workouts, but now all of a sudden this athlete's out of breath. And a lot of times it's just inferior conditioning to athletes that have had more training and are more mm -hmm. aerobically conditioned and it's not necessarily EIB or anything. There's no uh, pathology going on. It's just that they're not in uh, the shape they thought they were. So a lot of times that could be the first thing, you know, just uh, getting a history as far as has there been any change in what type of workouts people are doing, you know, what kind of group they're uh, working out with, um, things like that, you know, to, to see is this person just potentially um, out of shape? What's what's actually changed? Uh, a lot of times they might have been coming out back from time off and they're just more out of breath than they feel they should be. But in reality, it's just inadequate fitness. So I think that's one of the first major things is just getting a good history. Um, and secondly, is just actually uh, getting some more information about the symptoms, just asking, is this something that's happening while you're exercising? Does it happen? Uh, you know, do you experience these symptoms like Ken spoke about before? Is it during interval training? Is it during uh, continuous exercise? Is it actually during the exercise? Are you, are you having trouble breathing during or does it seem to happen after you stop? Um, one of the things we talk about is the uh, exercise-induced uh, laryngeal obstruction, um, previously known as vocal cord dysfunction, where an athlete might make a high-pitched inspiratory strider during exercise. So are they making any kind of noises during exercise? And is it during inspiration or expiration? And um, also, too, is there a wheeze after exercise? So just really trying to tweeze out, is this even consistent uh, with EIB? Um, we've seen athletes here where they'll have like, uh, like costochondritis or something like that, and they're experiencing pain somewhere, um, usually like a sharp pain in the ribs. Uh, that's uh, clearly not consistent with EIB, but a lot of times they'll get referred for uh, having EIB. So that would be the first thing to really start with is really talking to the patient and figuring out are the symptoms even consistent with EIB. Once you think the symptoms are consistent, what are the specialist tests available that you recommend patients are referred for? Um, if I might speak on that, in terms of a challenge test, um, uh, I think that uh, yeah, Aridol is, is a very good challenge test. Ken, can I just clarify, when you talk about uh, is Aridol, you're saying, is that, is that Manitol? Is that another name for Manitol? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's called something different in Great Britain. And I know that, <clears throat> that you uh, do a fair number of Aridol tests in Great Britain. Um, and other parts of Europe and the U.S. It's, it's and Australia, but in the U.S. it's it's no longer available. But that that is a great test, and and um, I guess second to and it's a relatively simple test to administer, and it's fast. And and uh, um, second to that, I would have to say that either dry air exercise or eucatnic voluntary hypertonia 
um, dry air exercise has the advantage um, of, of uh, being able to evaluate for that EILO, the uh, vocal cord dysfunction, uh, simultaneously. And, and that, um, in the athletes, that uh, we found that it's about 5%, um, and it's often comorbid with EIB. So um, I think those two tests, but I think it's, it's key to use dry, um, compressed medical-grade air when you're doing those tests. Uh, if you do uh, an ambient air challenge um, at 50% relative humidity, uh, you're going to miss anywhere from 75 to 50% of those that would test positive in the dry air. Um, and it's really important to have the intensity um, high enough as well, above 90% of their estimated heart rate max. And even, even with that, in the uh, A305 clinical trial, which was the clinical trial for Eridol, um, and that was a multi-center uh, uh, site, there were 161 individuals that tested positive at least once to two dry air exercise challenge tests. Um, however, only 45% of those tested positive on two tests, so the, the, the trial uh, required uh, two exercise tests within 48 hours of each other, and and that, those were dry air tests. So so even with that, um, uh, an exercise challenge test is is not foolproof. What sort of changes are we looking at when we're looking at the results of the test? What sort of degree of of change well, in the FEV one do we need uh, to well, diagnose statist- it? Yeah, statistically. Um, um, in terms of a 95% confidence, or, or actually, uh, it's a mean uh, um, those two standard deviations uh, comes out to roughly 10% mm-hmm. for exercise and EVH, um, and the cutoff with the uh, inhaled powder mannitol is a 15%. And and the mannitol is a much safer challenge because it's a dose response. And so after a 15% fall, the test is over. Whereas with EVH or exercise, it's really an all or none. So, so um, if the patient is going to fall 75%, uh, let's say, uh, for exercise and EVH, they will. Whereas with mannitol, the test would be stopped after a 15% or greater fall. So, so right. mannitol is a... Uh, uh, much um, it's more controlled way of, of testing yeah mm-hmm. much more controlled and easier on the patient okay. um, so those are the cutoffs uh, with athletes that statistical number drops down to about 7.2 percent uh, so so um, it's a little tighter response but but we still use a 10 percent fall okay yeah. Jamie, if we move over to you and talk a bit about the treatments now, before we talk about the sort of pharmacological ways of treating patients with this, can you talk about the sort of general advice that you give patients who are diagnosed with evidence with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction? Um, sure. So um, obviously, pharmacological management is uh, one option that is very effective when it's properly done. Um, but one of the things that uh, is important is just taking advantage of this idea of the refractory period, which happens um, in uh, some EIB patients, uh, where essentially if you can actually trigger an EIB response and then basically 
they have a refractory period where they're not going to bronchoconstrict, you can basically incorporate that into the warm-up. So, and again, this is not something that you necessarily want to do with somebody that has a very severe response. Uh, those those people should really be uh, undergoing some type of pharmacological management. But if somebody has you know pretty mild case, um, they can do some type of uh, sprint interval training exercise. Um, there's quite a bit of research out on that. Um, essentially, doing something like 60 bouts of um, 30 second sprints um, can be a little bit longer than that. Um, with one to two minutes of rest in between. And that uh, can potentially trigger uh, EIB, uh, you know, bronchoconstriction in an athlete that actually has EIB, but then they'll have a refractory period for a few, uh, up to a few hours after that, during which they can exercise without um, a, a second uh, bout of EI, a second bout of bronchoconstriction. So that's one thing that can potentially uh, be done is just incorporating this into a warm-up uh, for those patients that have uh, just mild case. Um, and then just also avoiding some of the environmental triggers too, if possible. Um, there's a lot of athletics fields that are right next to a highway or there's a lot of people that will uh, run. There might be some kind of running path that's next to a major road, trying to avoid those types of areas. Um, anybody that's going, that specifically has the luxury of picking what type of environment they train in, you know, if you're picking a training camp or something like that, those with EIB might want to try to avoid any place that's especially uh, dry or especially cold. So those are the just the easy things that uh, people can do uh, if they've only got a mild uh, EIB response. Okay. And if we move on to the pharmacological options, if the conservative management doesn't help? First option generally is, is uh, a beta-2 agonist, uh, which um, is taken prophylactically prior to exercise. Um, However, if the response is severe uh, enough to where the individual uh, has to use that beta-2 more than, say, three times a week, uh, they will tend to develop tachyphylaxis, and, and so that beta-2 agonists won't be as effective, and in that case, uh, inhaled corticosteroids would be the choice of treatment. Um, uh, uh, sodium chromoglycate uh, also works um, uh, quite well in terms of, of stabilizing the mast cell um, and preventing mast cell from releasing uh, those bronchoconstricting mediators. And some people respond very well to that. Um, and so a combination of, of uh, 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 short-acting beta-2 agonists uh, during the more uh, difficult workouts as, as prophylactically taken um, and inhaled corticosteroids seem to be uh, the most appropriate treatment. Um, with some individuals, I'm sorry, with some individuals, leukotriene receptor antagonists uh, work quite well. Um, the average protection from a leukotriene receptor antagonist is probably about 50%, but what that means is some people get 100% protection and some people get no protection and everything in between. So. Okay. And when would you suggest reviewing patients after initiation of treatment? How long should you give it before you, you think about changing or stepping up? Well, I, uh, personally, I, w I would uh, recommend reviewing um, within a couple months mm -hmm. after uh, um, uh, treatment is prescribed uh, and, and perhaps uh, um, having verbal communication with the patient between that, that period of time. And if the pharmacological options aren't working, what would you suggest is done next? 
I think one of the first things that uh, has to be addressed is if if any of these pharmacological options aren't working um, is patient compliance. Mm -hmm. um, just really making sure that the patient is um, using it as directed and that the directions were appropriate. Um, uh, with the beta agonists, as Ken mentioned before, the tachyphylaxis is a problem. So uh, it's it's not uncommon to see athletes take their use their inhaler on a daily basis, which basically will result within a week of tachyphylaxis. So mm -hmm. they won't respond anymore. Um, so that's definitely one thing that's really important. And the other thing is uh, essentially um, making sure that they're using enough. Um, you know, they're not leaving it at home or forgetting it, or it's too much of a pain, or they don't want their coach to know they've got an inhaler because they're scared that'll make them look weak. So number one thing is, are you using it as directed? Please describe to me how you're using it, um, how frequently, um, if it's not working, tell me why you feel it's not working. Um, and really just getting, talking to the patient about those types of things. That's the first line of defense. Mm -hmm. And finally, what are your take-home messages that you'd like readers to go away with regarding exercise-induced bronchoconstriction? Um, Ken, I don't know if you just want to add to, to my previous answer too about uh, what the next line is if, if the medication actually isn't working. Well, I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly if, if your diagnosis is correct, in, in the vast majority of cases, uh, the inhaled corticosteroids will work. However, um, it re you really have to evaluate on an individual basis. And if, in fact, um, the inflammation is uh, neutrophilic as opposed to eosinophilic, uh, then the uh, corticosteroids are not going to work as well. Um, so you really have to look at the patients as an individual. As far as the take-home message, um, basically I think the take-home message is that, you know, this is, it is fairly common um, and it's possible to be a very high-level athlete with EIB. EIB should not stop uh, most people from participating even at the highest level of athletics possible. Um, and just really important uh, for clinicians to realize that, um, Really following the uh, testing protocols is necessary in order for a proper diagnosis. And, you know, to, there's a lot of misdiagnoses out there that are possible and a lot of things can mimic it. So it's really important to get that diagnosis. And then once treatment actually starts, it's important to make sure that the patient is really compliant with um, the proper um, pharmacotherapy and the other recommendations uh, so that uh, they've got their most likelihood of success um, in their management. That's brilliant. James and Ken, thank you so much for joining us today.